Greetings and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Best. Thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to support the Afrofuturist podcast with your comments, with your questions, with your inquiries. This week, um, we have a wonderful Afrofuturist and visual artist. His name is Naeem Brown. And Naeem, I met Naeem in uh, the Bay Area uh, through our resident Afrofuturist, Lonnie Brooks. And Naeem, I've always loved because he has a, a very unique ability. He has a wonderful way of taking the past and integrating the past with the present and coming up with something visual that's always exciting and always interesting. He recently finished uh, a group of works called Beyond Wakanda, and um, he's taking that inspiration of the Black Panther movies and looking towards the future, a realized future, um, one that can be achieved through um, not only work, not only art, but through thought and philosophy. Uh, he's a very, very deep individual, very deep thinker, and, and very much an Afrofuturist in his heart, in his mind, and in his work. So um, I'm going to get right to it because Naeem is such an interesting brother and we had a very good, very long conversation about his work, Afrofuturism in general, uh, influence, everything that uh, moves him, influences him, and um, a lot of things that we share in common. So please enjoy Naeem Brown. It's interesting. There was an article I was reading last night that Lonnie had passed on to me, and uh, it was an article that it came across early on with that, about Afrofuturism that had a lot of scholarship to it. And and the writer was talking about that exact thing, the idea that how some ways that we we got fatigued, right? There's a way where we kind of got fatigued and stopped building ideas about the future. I mean, we, we I think that there's there's artisans. I think writers. Black writers have always tried to keep that that energy going, but thinking about like how in popular culture where it kind of grind, there's ways where it grinded to a halt. Now it's starting to kind of shift, you know. But that's really important again to put energy towards that idea of, of visualizing and imagining the future, right? Like what we what we want that to be. And another part of that is really also too of being outside the Western canon. Because it, that's where these other ideas and possibilities lie, because we've been focused on using the Western canon for so long. And the reality is that there's all these other amazing ideas that rest outside of the Western canon in terms of how to be body comportments, uh, how to come together as humans, right? But they're, they're just outside the Western canon. We're not looking at those things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this whole idea of transcended consciousness and this ability to move past the physical form is baked into the mythology and the idea outside of the Western canon. And it's not something that, uh, it's not an idea that the West really tried to bring into their present, right? It's not in, 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 in into yeah. their belief systems. They this, The Western idea of what is and the Western idea of what's imaginable is always outside of the self, right? Heaven is yeah. up there in the clouds. You know what I mean? Yeah. We have dominion over earth. Like all of these things that don't include us as human beings in the whole grand scope of things. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. the, the idea is that the, the West came up, I think, you know, evolved from this idea that nature was against them. Right. So yeah. in the West, it was like it was cold. It was harsh. 
and everybody was looking for food, even the animals that were bigger than them. So everybody, in, as a human being, they were prey. And it was either prey against nature or prey against, you know, predators. And so this, you know, almost really, you know... It's an antagonistic like, setup. Yes, this it's, it was, it's a psychological disruption that happened where it was just like, yeah. well, the best must be out there. And it's also an easy idea to fall into, right? Yeah. Especially I, I if you're being subjugated and oppressed. African aesthetics, this idea being connected to nature, that's not separate. And that it's also not an, an antagonistic situation. We're not opposed to it. We're actually linked to it. Uh-huh. And so I think there's so many ways that we see aesthetics that come out from outside the Western canon that do relate to these ideas of relating more intimately with nature, the earth. Um, and the funny thing is, but but it's funny you mentioned this, this idea when you said people are reaching higher and higher for this unknown thing, right? These, these levels reaching upwards. Right. And I think that that also has to do a lot with the, the Western sense of time, right? A linear perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Top and bottom. Whereas when we look outside that Western canon, we see much more of a sense of it being a circular sense of time or ideas about even how history works, that it folds back in on itself as opposed to it being always straight ahead. And also when it's always straight ahead in the Western perception time, we have very little time to look back. And that's... That's important. Even think, even think about the Khan symbol of Sankofa mm-hmm. and its meaning, the idea, don't be afraid to go back and fetch what you left. And what that really is translates to the idea that it's nothing wrong with going back and examining older ideas, right? There could be a blueprint for how to cohabitate, how to be, how to handle and body comportment that's already laid out in, in blueprints that exist with other cultures. I mean, we're all humans, we're reservoirs of information. So to think that the Western canon is the only source of information or the only place that talks about how to be. And it seems crazy. And the funny thing too, also we see right now with contemporary culture, with the Western canon, its obsession with things like yoga and looking back in science, examining things like, we actually have a magnetic field. And so it's this weird way where Western science is actually going back and looking at things that Eastern culture and other cultures have already kind of known. Yeah, for thousands so, of years. Absolutely. Right? So there's this way where the Western canon is, is it's, it's exhausted. Mm-hmm. It, it is totally exhausted. <laughs> right, know? absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, we kind of jumped right in, which is great. Yeah, sorry um, about that. No, it's, it's all good. So like that. No, that's wonderful, because I like to start right in the middle. Um, but I do want to welcome you. Thank you, Naeem Brown, for uh, being on the Afrofuturist podcast. And thanks for no, jumping right thank in. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, <laughs> of course, brother. Of course. And from the first time I, I met you and I saw your work, I wanted you to be on the podcast. and I wanted to have a, a lot more conversation about what you do, how you do, and how you think. And um, jumping on this idea of, you know, the Western canon and time being circular, the thing that I really love about Afrofuturism and futurist thinking is the fact that historically, as people outside of the Western culture, we have embraced this idea of looking back and looking forward. And it is, it, and it seems like right now, 
all the ideas of what is supposed to supposed to make you or supposedly supposed to make you happy has to happen in the present moment. And everybody says, be present, stay in the yeah. present, look in the <laughs> present, don't yeah. look back, don't look forward, be here. And I, I, as I, as beneficial as I think that is, I think we are taking away from our human ability, our human our human cognitive ability to be able to look forward and look yeah. back and draw on those experiences. Yeah. So I think yeah. that when you fold in this idea of outside the Western canon, outside the Western culture, I think that's something that we do inherently. And I think that's something that I see in your yeah, work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I think you're right. I mean, because I am. I mean, I am looking back and uh, and and not to dwell in the past, but uh, I heard this one couple weeks to say, is like, you know, the past dwells in me. So these things that I've seen in the past, they have a resonance because they also have an importance. And so I want to kind of figure out how to bring certain symbols, uh, certain ideas, how to bring those forwards, how to bring those traditions and things forward visually so that they maintain the core idea of these you know, ideas of African body comportment, aesthetics, how we view the world, like when creating the imagery, I want the core of that to stay there, but I also wanted to move forward, right? To just, because as a storyteller, to make it fit for the contemporary, my contemporary African audience. Like, so you could see, oh, I could see the elements of the culture in there, but I also see this threads that's something unfamiliar. There's something in there that's part of that personal expression that makes you unique as well, right? The unique part of what I'm, what I'm up to in my investigation, you know? Um, and the idea of offering new narratives, like that's as part of it, right? Because we're talking about, we're saying outside the Western canon and we're talking about temporality not being linear, linear anymore. And those are like some of those goals that I'm trying to achieve with the work is folding back on time, looking back at things that are important that have a certain resonance in the diaspora when we look at not looking at certain particular ones and also identifying that, that there are particular things in the diaspora and figure out how to talk about that kind of visually and pulling those things together to create a new thing. So the personal expression kind of wrapped around looking at different aspects of the, of cultural expression within the diaspora and putting it together all to kind of create, and also my own personal story to create this new story this new thing, this new narrative, which again, thinking about Afrofuturism, that's what a key element is. It's like devouring the past, like consuming it like a cannibal, the, the past, the part that is the colonialism, the part that's the terror, the horror, kind of cannibalizing, yeah, like the past, but the trauma, the trauma past, right. not the, the cultural pillars, right? Not the pillars that are important aesthetics, things that are really heavy, hardcore ideas of the diaspora, not destroying that, but the traumatic parts and inserting something else, another type of story. With all the ideas and, and influences that you have and all the media options that are out there, you still choose paint. You still choose yeah. oil on canvas. Sure. What's the reason that you think that painting is still a viable source to get these ideas out. 
Well, you know, it's funny, you know, it's, um, I'm also, that's something I'm also playing a lot with too, right now is, is investigating that, like the paint on the surface is, a, it's really paint like on black, blackboard. And part of that is because thinking about the African diaspora story always being one of erasure, like it's always being erased. And so using oil, which is a permanent type of pigment on the surface of the blackboard is to try to create a permanency of this new type of story or narrative or allegory that I'm creating. There's a challenge that kind of that kind of resides in that, trying to use this archaic tool to create visions of the future and also compete. There's a need to, to, to challenge myself to use these materials to do that. But I've also stretched out to installation, you know, doing more things with cut paper, um, other objects to basically enhance how one experiences my visual art. So really manipulating the entire space so as opposed to just using the canvases, I've been thinking a lot about that, like manipulating installation, manipulating entire spaces. But um, another project that, that I've also been engaging is thinking about is performative element and thinking about storytelling almost being like five dimensional and thinking of it is the, a project I'm working on is basically a hip hop artist rapping directly to a three by 20 foot scroll of drawing of a, of a narrative that I've created and they're being hip hop dancers. And thinking about how I could make a contemporary, as a contemporary African, how could I make a ritualized practice out of my art practice? How do I do that? But incorporating the tools that I'm familiar with, like hip hop, an MC, a DJ, rapping and performing directly to my work or somehow creating a call and response, right? Directly to my piece and Finding what is how this is a new thing. So it is it's moving moving a little bit. It's moving away from just the work on the canvas and starting to think and embrace these other ideas. Um, but I go back and forth. I go back and forth. The challenge of trying to manipulate the older tool, but also to looking at newer newer ways of presenting visual imagery because it does have to compete in in. Social media has to compete with moving pictures of film. How do I do that? How do I keep people kind of locked in? And again, I moved between painting, painting installation and straight installation. And now this kind of other idea I've been thinking about, which is uh, more performative, like using more performative elements. So I think as I kind of, as I keep exploring aspects of, of my own expression, but also Afrofuturism, the, the elements of what I use to express that are gonna keep changing. Whatever the concept calls for, if it, if it needs to be a short film, then I think it needs to be that, if that's what the idea calls for. If it needs to be a full scale sculpture, then that's what it needs to be. You know what I mean? So I'm, not, so I'm trying to leave myself open to the option of letting the concept guide what's the best material for its execution. See what I mean? Yes. Um, I had, I once had this conversation with my brother. My brother's a, a visual artist, a painter, and he went to Cooper Union ah. in uh, New York City. And, you know, my mother's a painter. I come from a lot of painters. My uncles are painters. And, oh, that's pretty uh, that nice, man. That's a nice background. Yeah. So I grew up around a lot of that, a lot of that energy and a lot of that, um, you sure. know, art and impetus. And my brother and I had this conversation about Pablo Picasso once, and um, he was talking to me about how all of his um, shapes and forms were influenced by West African art. 
And uh-huh. a lot of those, um, you know, a lot of his ideas of forms blending into forms to create these shapes that look like um, a depiction of human comes from the influence of African art. And it feels as if there is a surrealist element to your work as well. Which came first, the surrealist element or the African element when it comes to your work? You know, uh, I want to break that down. I want to get deep, but I'll tell you a a funny story before I go there, which which will put some handles on that, which is, I was in a summer program uh, through Cal Cal Arts when I was uh, in high school. I think I was maybe a junior. And the program was dope, it was for young artists. I got in, I was really pumped. We stayed at the dorms the whole nine yards. I ran to a brother who was outside working on a large sculpture and he was wearing all white. And it's a huge piece of wood. And so I asked this guy, I said, I was pumped. Cause I was like, yo, is that, I ran downstairs like, yo, man, are you, are, you a, are you a black artist? You're like an African artist, you make, you make African work? And it was really funny because he paused and he said, um, yeah, yeah, he, can say, he said, he said are, you, are, you, are you an African? I said, yeah. He goes, do you make art? I said, yes. He goes, do you make African art? And, and so I, I went back upstairs and my head was blown, right? Because I was like, what? Because I was so ready for him to be like, yes, I'm a black artist and I make black art. Like you had to like choose to do that, right? Like this was a a thing you chose to do. It was so funny because conceptually, brother really broke it down. Because even if I did portraits of all white presidents, it would be black art, right? (laughs) So the brother really dropped some knowledge on me. So it's funny. Uh, So, so. That informs the story in a way that I feel like I've always kind of been doing that. My father was a visual artist that did work that was quite very surreal. He had a huge book on Salvador Dali, which was a big influence of his. And for the longest time, I thought Salvador Dali's work was photographs. That's surreal. They were just bizarre photographs. I couldn't understand them. And so I always saw surreal influence, like visually, in terms of art history. But I also thought about African-American folklore, which my dad always told me some really great stories, and my grandmother, too, on my mom's side. So whenever I thought about African folk tales, African-American folklore, it was filled with the surreal. So it almost seemed like the only route to go, really, with like the way that I created imagery and how I saw or visualized imagery was that it was surreal. It, it, it was always blended realities. It was never... Yeah, you know, it's like I remember my grandmother telling me a story about a, a snake in Florida called a coach whip. She go, oh, baby, I stand up and snap you like a whip. Pop. I'm like, what? I tried to visualize a snake, like, standing up and just, chow, like a whip. I'm like, that's crazy. But she was a great storyteller. And so she blended reality and that imaginative quality quite well. And so for me, I feel like that's a, a that's, part of the diaspora, you know, when you talk and you, and we talk through metaphors all the time. You know, I remember seeing these, these Ghanaian statues that had certain animal symbols on the tops of the staffs. And what they were for, for different people within the court. And there was one that had a particular design and it was for the courtesan who was very good at speaking, like translating, but also articulating. And I always think like, you know, that's why we love hip hop. 
Black folks, we love to talk. You give us a time to talk just like now, I will talk. Because we love to bend language. We love all of the way that it can conjure up so many aspects and unlocks the Black imagination. That's why it's such an interesting thing and powerful tool, language and storytelling for us, you know? So the surreal element was almost always there. And I had to develop some of the technical aspects of, of training, you know, as a technical artist to unlock it more. But I think that it was always part of my sketching vocabulary, you know, to see, you know, brothers. I mean, ever since I saw like, you know, Atomic Dog, you know, or, or you know, Dr. Funkenstein album cover or Earth, Wind and Fire or, or what, a Blowfly album covers. These are all things that I encountered that did that exact thing we're talking about, kind of unlocking my, my imagination or pushing it even more over the top, you know? So part of me feels like part of the African reality, like as a black person is that you see, you see the world very surreal, you know? Yes. How, how did you, how do you start? Do you start with an idea? Do you start with a story? Do you start with a picture in your head? Like when you see paint and canvas what where is your beginning point you know it starts um it's it depends at the time again i'm like i work on maybe two streams or maybe two to three streams of work at one time in terms of concepts like bodies of work and they all feed into one another you know and so i'm working on a series currently which is called new black myths and so the way that I do a lot of the imagining for this particular story is, again, I talked about how a lot of the influences come from folk tales, folk practice, practices from across the diaspora. I love to combine these things, as well as combine those with my own personal history and experiences and desires and, and needs to create this new story. And the structure of the story I use is based on um, a guy by the name, I used this part of the structure of a guy by the name of Joseph Campbell, an author who wrote the book called The Thousand Faces of a Hero. Right. Power and, of Myth. Oh, you familiar with the book? Absolutely. Hero yeah. with a Thousand Faces, Power of Myth, all of, I love yeah. Joseph Campbell. Completely. So it's, so part of the structure, he lays out a diagrammatical structure of like the journey of the, the hero, yeah. right, his travels. And so I kind of use that actually as a, a very loose kind of structure to kind of build my narratives. And I look at African-American popular culture as well as like, again, other just things, my own experiences, things that I'm observing and mix those with, again, these folk tales that could come from the Caribbean. They could be Afro-Latino. They could be Afro-Caribbean. Mix those again with my own stories to get a point across, to figure out, because there's, again, I want to stay true to me telling a story, right? There's a, there's a hero. There's something that's happening that's important for, for the larger allegory, but also try to infuse these elements of what's happening, observations of popular culture, you know? And the way that it starts could be everything from reacting to situations that I see, how I feel, a brother getting gunned down, shot in the back as he runs away. Um, or it could be, um, you know, trials and tribulations of my cousin, you know, her dealing with the fact that she wants to stay in a home it's having some issues with finances, kids, you know, all these things that are more personal, right? These things. So there's moments. So the moments start out just, just again, as like most artists' observations, you know? 
as a visual artist, I do think that it's important to communicate. So that's a, that's that's also as a part of that conceptualizing is like, well, what do I want to communicate? Like she's like, okay, what do I want to say? You know. Um, so that that's kind of all parts of it. Those are all the elements that kind of start to work, weave their way into it. Art history plays a role too, because it's like I'm also, as much as I'm talking about art history, I'm also involved in it. So sometimes my work is responding or reacting to to other moments in art history and looking at a particular artist's work and being like, you know, I like what you said there, but I want to turn this sideways to say something else because I like what you've started in your conversation, but I want to actually turn this for my own own reasons this way, you know? Um, See what I mean? Yes, absolutely. When did you... Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, but but that's, yeah, those are the ways that I I try to envision the work. And so very traditional too. I, I start out with thumbnail sketches, then go to like more of a color preliminary and then take it to the board. When did you start painting? When was it? When did you make the decision that this was the thing? Uh, You know, it was, I think, really, um, my dad is a visual artist, a painter and uh, sculptor. And my mother does fashion design and was always interested, just did it on her own, like made up, did their own shows. My dad would work with my mom, paint on her clothing and stuff. And uh, that was what I saw all the time. You know, but it was really funny. So I always drew, but that one day I found a, a comic book in a trash can and I was maybe, I don't know, maybe 12 or something. And it was Micronauts. And I remember it was just the coolest, like, I was like, whoa, what, this is, woo, like, who did this, you know? And that was, I got kind of obsessed because I wanted to be like, man, I want to, who, who drew that? So I went to go see if I could find it, looked in the stacks, looked at old 25 cent comics. And I realized at that point that I was interested, I liked stories in the comics, but I also really was, wow, I like the arts. Wow, I like what you're doing. So I think I kind of got interested through that. It seems though weird, even though I drew all the time, like with my dad, I drew spaceships, whole pages of spaceships with lasers going to like 50 different other uh, ships. But that comic book really became a catalyst to start collecting um, I, I liked it. I thought it was pretty good, but I also got a job at the D Young Museum here in San Francisco and I was a junior docent. So I perused the African and Pacific, uh, Pacific Island collection all the time. And also looking at the ruins of Teotihuacan and just their painting collection. So seeing that and seeing images of a French Orientalist by the name of Jean Germain and his images of Africans were very impactful because the work that he showed, because he was an Orientalist, he, he did hyper-realism. So he didn't make any distortions of how the black people looked in the Middle East. He made them look like real people. They weren't stereotypes. They weren't looking like coons or anything that I'd ever seen. They had a certain type of dignity. And I was like, man, I want to make paintings like that. Like not because, and I didn't even know who he was. It just was like, I want to make them look like people. And so I think that that would became like a real, real serious kind of moment, like being able to kind of, and also feel at home. That job made me feel at home in the museum, right? Like I'm okay being in this space. I want to be part of this and I want to shape it. 
So I think those are the kind of the early threats, you know, and of course, good encouragement. But I think those like that, seeing my folks, that comic book um, and then having a job like as a young person in in the arts, like in a cultural institution like that was really important. And what gave you what gave you the courage to actually pursue it as something that you would want to do for uh, for your life? I think, um, you know, I think, of course, I think a lot seeing my parents, again, they were like these African-American going to Bohemians. They both came from different places. My mom came in from New York, like the Bronx, and my dad came in from Shreveport, Louisiana. And they came to California like the summer of love. I mean, they were just like ready to just be Bohemians, you know? And they also created, they were also part of a group of other African-Americans who, same thing, other artists pursuing different things, whether it was dance, fashion, um, whatever. And I think seeing seeing a lot of that um, around me as I got older, I saw that as a real avenue. Like, so I didn't, so I think there were other, other I'm sure there's other people exact same age as me, other like people of color, other African-Americans who, their folks were just like, yo, you gotta go get a job. You gotta hit the bricks like this. This is how you need to hit the bricks. But I saw examples of black people being arts. And so, that's what left the largest impression on me. And when I had the opportunity to go into school, I got a scholarship, a wrestling, so I wrestled, so I had a scholarship. And my cousin's husband was a doctor. And he was like, yo, man, you should go to Morehouse. And I was like, yo, Morehouse is, yeah. Because I went to, in San Francisco, up in Portrayal Hill, I went to the Omega Boys Club. It was, it was put on by a brother who was part of the Omegas, Omega Sci-Fi's. And so I was introduced to the generosity of, Black fraternities, you know, I mean, I, I was I was aware that I knew who they were too culturally. I knew who they were, but I benefited firsthand because they they set up classes for young uh, students to, to prepare for the SAT. And so that helped me immensely to get into school. So thinking about Morehouse was an option. I was kind of interested, but my cousin's husband said, you know what? You should apply and go and major in business and minor in art. And I was just like, man, I had no because my mom and dad were not business people. I had no idea what that meant. I mean, I totally thought briefcases were just really big lunchboxes. I had no idea when I was a kid seeing people walk down the street with briefcases. So I, that was really foreign. And I told my parents were bohemians. So I was like, to major in business, minor in art seemed totally backwards. You know, and I got accepted to the Art Institute of Chicago and I got some scholarships. So I was like, man, I'm going there. And I want to try to find out something new because I grew up growing up in the Bay Area. So I want to see something new, you know. Um, so that was really that was it. You know, really was like I, I just. Uh, that was kind of like what really kind of sealed the deal, you know, I think is because that those options of like not knowing what business was. And I knew that I was good at visual art. And those were the examples that I had saw around me, you know, and I felt good about that. I felt that that was good that I had those examples. You know, that it wasn't necessarily people in business suits. I mean, I had that in my family, larger family, but yeah. And um, when you're doing a piece mm -hmm. and you're telling a story in your piece, how do those influences from, you know, growing up in, in a bohemian lifestyle with your parents growing up in San Francisco, having this idea about the future, how do, how do all of those things manifest in you? Do you make a conscious effort to put those things in your work? 
or does it just happen? Does it come out? Do you plan? How much is planned and how much is just divine inspiration for lack of a better term? Well, you know, I think that you caught me at the be- at a great point in my life where I could actually reflect on those things because I've, because I've slowly been actually piecing a lot of that together because because of this topic of Afrofuturism becoming so present now in the culture and starting to think about what were the catalysts for myself. Because again, these are practices, stuff that I do are things that I've been doing since I started doing art, but only now has there surfaced a particular name, right? that kind of culminates all these different disciplines that are doing this thing, right? Exploring this thing as black artists. So I think that the seeds were kind of planted early on as I reflect, you know, it's like my mom did fashion design. Like I said, she created her own shows. She created her own clothing. She had models. She put on shows here in the Bay area. One of her shows, and I participated in the shows. And one of the shows was called space odyssey. 2000 Space Odyssey. So this is like in the in the 70s. So already I'm seeing this. We're talking about the future in 70 some 1970-something as, as a young kid participating in this future show that my black mom, my designer mom has put together. So that's already happening. Um, my dad's painting like, you know, planets and stuff on these leather jumpsuits that my mom has made. I think that. Uh, my dad, being a hustler, he hustled for a long time, meaning like he did, he slang packets of this, that, and the other thing. Anything besides really having too much of a real job, but he also was a painter. And I think some of the, the business savvy from the street life to the artisan, there were these weird similarities drifting between patrons and clients, you know, this weird, weird way where... The social was also wrapped up in business, right? And also, it was not a normal way of being. It wasn't like your everyday job that someone had, this job that my dad had. Painting as well as the other aspect of kind of hustling. So I think different ways of thinking were implanted early on. See what I mean? Different ways of handling or maneuvering were already already planted there to, to the seeds. And so... As I got older, I started to till the dirt and start to see what's happening with that. And so, you know, it may have even planted the seeds of me being interested in stuff like Micronauts. And then after going to Micronauts, you know, thinking about my love of science fiction. And things shifted when I went to art school because thinking that that was not what you made paintings about. You don't make paintings about spaceships. You don't make paintings about space brothers or earth wind and fire album covers you know you get a very particular type of training and you and you know i came in contact with archibald motley right this painter but the strange thing was is when i came in contact with archibald motley he did this one painting called kukuyu and the painting called kukuyu is of these black people in the middle of the forest dancing around the fire and this huge crazy hybrid creature with horns is rising out of the flames. Even though all the work we know of Archibald Motley is very conservative, like black people just partying and doing what they do, like being very three-dimensional, you know, being real people. But this weird, surreal, fluky painting I found in his oeuvre, and I was like, whoa. It kind of gave me permission to be like, yo, you need to kind of like tweak it out, bro. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, oh shit. I don't have to be I don't have to just create social realism 
I don't have to talk to brothers this way, right? Because you know this. <laughs> you know me saying, hey, we're more than just human. You know, we, we, we feel we're, we're more than three-dimensional human beings. I don't need to do those paintings. There's a billion of those paintings that exist. And when I saw that painting by Archibald Motley, it was like, you need to use a different language to talk to people. Because even when you talk to the people, your homeboys, you're talking in all this hyperbole and all of this metaphor, all this surreal shit is going on. So why not paint that way? Communicate that exact way with your work. And seeing those bits of the Archibald Motley, right? Seeing my dad do these paintings that were talking about the dope epidemic in the black community, like using like a syringe and there's like little human heads coming out of the syringe into like a subway. So seeing these illustrations, right, of how my father's thinking about the community around him, these issues, social issues, and how he's using the media, his particular media, to talk about that are all the things that completely made that for sure shaped me and had me start to think about what is my role as a black artist? Like what are some of the social concerns that need to come up in the work? How much do you express your own self, right? Because it's about personal expression as well. It's not just about telling our story. It's my story too, part of my story. And then also adding elements of hope, but not cheesy hope, not like the black kings of Africa, Budweiser's Superfest poster hope, not like that. Hope like, what's in the future? Like, Uhura, like, aren't we part of building the future like I saw in the, like, the old Star Trek? Like, aren't we part of that? What does that look like? Because I, you know what I mean? Because it's like, I, I go and spend money in sci-fi movies, and I want to see myself reflected just like in visual art. So the same thing within science fiction and this idea of the future. So these are all things that were catalysts that helped, that helped me form my ideas for the paintings, but also want the, the desire to see this idea of the future, you know, compressing all these different influences to try to help sculpt that future. So it's looking at the now as well as elements of the past to try to figure out, figure out that, that visuals, like to make that vision of the future, you know? So all those I think are kind of play that role to kind of move me towards making the type of work that I, that I make. But I think that a lot of the key elements are, yeah, like that, like having a mom and that's doing like, you know, shows about the future. My dad that has this other way of thinking about being right within the community, this kind of hustler, this hostile mentality and my own interest in science fiction, but seeing a desire to want to see myself reflected right? Because I don't see that right away. It's like um, when I saw, <laughs> like when I saw um, Lando Calbrissian, almost fell out of the chair, dude. I was just like, oh shit, King Cobra, oh snaps, is like in the house. Because I saw myself reflected because that's what you desire in art, right? Because that's what I desired when I was working at the museum, is when I saw myself reflected in a way with dignity or just was real, not distorted stereotype, it was compelling. So it's like I wanted to figure out how do I can how do I create more compelling visual situations like that? You know? So those are all the things that move me towards creating the work that I do, the catalyst for it, right? Um, there are other smaller triggers or other ones that play a role, that idea of extending tradition, you know, the idea that 
I'm part of the folk tradition. There's a folk tradition of storytelling as an African-American person or within the diaspora. But to be a storyteller and to also for it to work, you also have to make the fit for now. I have to make the story fit. I have to capture my audience. And so I'm inter intimately involved with that, trying to figure out how to be a contemporary storyteller to keep my audience involved with these new stories that I'm telling, as well as also the self-expression, the self just part of making the stories very, very unique, telling what I have to say. How important is audience? Because a lot of times, you know, a lot of artists and myself included, um, we we say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing my art really to please myself and I have to get these things out, which I think is true. Right. Yeah. But we do need folks to watch it and experience it as well. Right. We're not doing yeah. it in our our rooms by ourselves just for ourselves we are getting it out there so how important is audience and how important is a large audience specifically for the type of and the style of work that you're doing um it's really important and i think that's one of the things i'm really currently working on a lot is really trying to give more exposure to the work because i feel like that's that becomes important because the more the work is seen and exposed the more that i could also connect with other people within my field and create other opportunities to expose these ideas more, the ideas that are coming up with the work and ideas that I've embedded in the work, but also ideas that are coming out because they're part of this lar larger dialogue, right, of Afrofuturism. And when being able to work with other artists or when my work is exposed, I'm able to do like we met, you know, or meeting Lonnie or meeting other people like at the Black Speculative Arts Movement that was, that was held in Oakland. Exposing my, my practice, my thoughts, um, and connecting with other art, other professionals within the field from other disciplines, I feel like that becomes invaluable. That becomes really like a real kind of kind of major. It's major because I think then that's when you have breakthroughs and new things happen, new developments of literary working with visual, working with audio, and all that. So all these really innovative things kind of happen. I think, you know. I always think, you know, that's that again, those are the, the things that like I feel like work are really, really strong aspects. But go ahead and tell me the, of that question again, though, because I've lost track of the other part of the question. So yeah, talking me. about audience and how audience influences yes. your work oh, as well. That's important. And I always actually talk to my students a lot about that because they feel that they have no audience or that it's just like you were saying, like you do the work for yourself. Yeah, I, I create the work with a particular audience in mind. It's like I want to be able to communicate directly. I think, so again, an African-American audience. I want them, I'm thinking of that particular group when looking at the work, but I also want, I desire people who are not of African diaspora to be moved by the work. Just the way that I was moved by a Rubens piece. You know, Ruben didn't expect me, an African-American person, to see his work, a Netherlandish painter from the 17th century, didn't expect me to be like, oh man, that's a dope painting. You know, because he just created such a compelling image that I just thought it was dope. Well, he didn't expect that. So I feel like I want my work to function in that way as well. So that someone else who was not the audience right away totally is still moved by the piece. And, and I think that to create the work that I'm doing, I have to have an audience in mind. You know, I think there's no way because who am I talking or who am I communicating this to? Right. It's like, and, and 
if I didn't have an audience, I don't think there would be an urgency around creating the work or doing what I do. And I do feel that there's a certain urgency. There's, there's a way with the work, it pleases me to be an artist. I like this mode of communication, but it's also important for me to share and communicate because that's really what art does. And so to communicate is for me connecting and, and to connect, I have to have broader exposure of my ideas and practices. And so I think that's what, yeah, that's, that's the large desire, you know? And to effect, effect, to effectively be part of a large dialogue as opposed to, like you're saying, just making paintings and putting it underneath your bed. What can we do better as Afrofuturist artists? Where can we up our game? Where can we improve? <clears throat> that's a tricky one. Uh, that's tricky. Uh, you know, when I thought about when, when the question came up recently at the Black Spectrum Arts Movement um, conversation, the panel conversation that talked about like, how do you go like beyond Wakanda, right? This kind of idea. And one of the things that I had noticed when I saw the Black Panther movie again, I think it was the third kind of viewing I saw of it, you know, I think as an Afrofuturist and thinking about the, all the artisans who took part in creating the movie, right? The te visual texture of the movie, uh, the Black Panther, is I think the way that you up the game, right? As, as, a, as could be a writer, could be a visual artist. I think it's, again, trying to figure out how do you extend and, and honor aspects of these really key aspects of diaspora aesthetics, you know, and it's not monolithic. So it's like, it's going to be really diverse. It's like, how do you honor that while at the same time, not being, create images of the future that aren't trite, that aren't trite and pedantic, meaning that they don't look like, oh, you got kente cloth in there, so that's black. I could tell that's a black, that's totally related to black. Or, oh, see what I mean? Like these, there's certain symbols that we need to be inspired by. And inspired by meaning have reference to and make you think of, but not directly landing on. And what I mean by that is certain aspects of the movie where I would see like that, like, you know, be somebody with directly kente cloth. And I'm like, man, you know, even the brothers in Africa, man, they wear that. But there's a way where you see this really amazing blend of contemporary culture because they're contemporary Africans, how they blend like the older traditions with contemporary stuff, you know? And so I feel like that if, and so the subtlety, there has to be more of a subtlety, if that makes sense. It doesn't have to be as quite blatant. And also to... And I think that that comes from being inspired by our own African culture and thinking inspiration is like, I see what that looks like. How do I now keep the spirit of that? Design something new, but keep the spirit of that. See? And so I feel like that's part of it, like keeping these core kind of ideas or aesthetics intact, but you got to also extend it. I don't know. I mean, for me, I've told you like kind of ideas of how I've, formulate that for myself and how I build my own narratives there's a way to approach that but yeah I don't I'm, I mean for for up in the game I think yeah it's like thinking more even more out of the box even more pushing it even further pushing it even further don't don't feel that you have to be pinned to anything that you think is African because that might be telegraphing the idea too much 
Yeah, I I struggle with this a lot. I mean, if that does that make sense? I mean, I don't yeah, know if that absolutely, makes sense. absolutely. And and I ask the question because it's something that I'm constantly coming up against. Because when we're talking about um, making things, and we're talking about making things from this perspective that is not Western, right? And and yeah. you know, let's even leave the continent of Africa as, you know, an overall kind of umbrella over everything, but not to specify it. The hardest thing that I find is that when you are trying to approach an audience that has very little exposure and experience to a non-Western idea, I run into this thing of believability, right? They do not believe that there is enough of a diversity in a specific community to think that these things happen. So, for example, if there is somebody in the Black Panther movie that goes, okay, let's take this just plain, you know, black cloth and yeah. put a Roman figure on it, and that's African. Yeah. And people would say, no, no, no. We need Kente cloth, right? <laughs> but... but on the flip, there's like, wait a minute, there might be a Roman aesthetic to this African nation because yeah. there was migration, there was trade, there was all of these things, yeah. and that is a possibility, right? But the believability that there is something open and other that exists within this community is the thing that I, I run up against quite a lot. And that's the hardest thing about moving, I think, the ideas forward and the art forward is that the folks who are paying the bills have to believe it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think, but you know, it's funny because I, I agree with you. I, told, I, I, see, I see what you're talking about. You know, it's like, how do you, you know, brothers like, yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, I was in just in North, I was in Omaha, I was in North Omaha. It's like, you know, you can't, and it's the, the black part of town and it's and it's dealing with a lot of its own issues and stuff. And it's like, you know, to try to come in and be like, yo, you know, Afrofuturism is a thing, gotta live for the future. We gotta, you know, that might be a hard sell. You know, brother's like, yo, man, you know, I'm trying to like get my kid into a really great school, you know, and. Um, you're talking about the future. I'm talking about begin that present thing, right? Like not allowing yourself to visualize the future, but you're in the present. You're so locked in. You know, um, it's like Kerry uh, James Marshall, the painter. He said that you know one of the things that he was trying to do was he he saw that there was no black figures in art history, and so he feels like part of his job is to make as many black paintings, uh, pe- paintings of black people in them. To kind of create this tidal wave to usurp that, to usurp the fact that like, and it's also his reaction to the fact that like, there's no black bodies. I'm gonna paint as many black bodies as I possibly can for as long as I can, to flood the art world with new visual imagery of the of black people, right? Like that's his mission. That's part of his mission, and so it and he start. It's starting to work. <laughs> there's a weird way. Where, you know, because Puffy, P. Diddy, whatever people want to call him, is like, he's the one that bought, he paid all that money for the piece that was recently purchased for like $20 million, you know, for Kerry James Marshall's piece. People, that was a big deal because Puffy is an example of a brother that probably came from, and I'm just going to say probably, he's like, he was sent to school, 
by his parents. He wants to do business. He kind of rebelled and did hip hop, but still business, right? So he's he's a really a, a young African American entrepreneur focused on the business track. And so I just thought that was a really big deal for him to purchase this artwork and letting other African Americans know that man, you could dream. I did that. Like I purchased a piece that's like this is not for me to breathe. It has no real value that it's not making me move. It's not a car. It's not a plane taking me where this unlocks my imagination. And I'm also supporting one of the rawest black artists that's living right now. These are really important signals. I think that it's sending in terms of like, we need to take a better look at that. Right. And that we need to slow down and not say that we don't have time for imagination that we only have time for these real, like, I need to get my kid through school. You got to get a good education and get a good job. You got to slow down and start to look at things like visualizing and unlocking imaginations and taking the time to dream. Like we're like in some article we are talking about, like taking the time to unlock that. See what I mean? And so I kind of feel like there's, there's a little bit of hope. So I say that, say that there's a little bit of hope, but I do know what you're saying. Um, I feel like that's part of my struggle too, is like, I just kind of have to kind of fight that, keep producing the work I'm doing to say that there is a point to this. There is a point and that you have to, and again, the exposure helps me to say that there is a point to this, you guys. Like you do need to pay attention to this. There is a way that we have to reframe how we think about ourselves, you know, like <laughs> imagining that, right? Like with the, the Roman, image on the black cloth. You know, we have to be able to imagine it without the campaign, right? Because there's ways we, we're all, we can imagine, yeah, we just have to go further than that. But I, I do know what you mean and how that creates an issue for, for Afrofuturists, but I'm hoping, again, that, that that's slowly starting to chip away by things like, again, puppies kind of move. Um, I think by seeing more things like, um, uh, what's the, the movie recently that Oprah Winfrey was just in? And- Wrinkle uh, in Time. Nickel in time, you know, and then the director, I think again, her supporting that director and her vision. And I think, and again, a whole crew of other black artisans who helped put that movie together as well, the visuals. I think like, man, that's, these are all kind of important steps. Even Oprah's role in the movie and her presence and her being such a major part of it was saying that like, yo, check this out. Like, you need to check this out. Like, I know you guys might think this is all, as a group of people, we may think this has a lot to do with imagination, but it's a, it's a good imagination. Like, we need to think about this stuff. We need to think of the future. Because we've met the fact that we got kids in school. We got, we got our people in school. But now it's that visualization thing that needs to happen, that imagining really the future, not just securing the food, the grits, the gravy for today. It's about like thinking about what else is there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think what you're talking about and what um, Carrie James Marshall was doing was anti tokenism, right? When yeah. there's one that's in, everyone points to the one that's in and they say, mm -hmm. oh, look, you guys, you did it. There's your one. But the hardest part about tokenism is when you're the token, it's very difficult to advance the idea and the movement of what you represent because you're trying to stay there and you're trying to continue on your path right and that's the thing that i find with the black panther movie and the black panther movie is wonderful 
and fantastic. And rather than think we need Wakanda, I think we need Wakanda's, right? We need more than the Black Panther movie. We need 10 Black Panther movies. We need 100 Black Panther movies so we can make it the norm. Just like what Kerry James Marshall was talking about in his paintings. Like, the reason why I'm doing this tsunami of black faces in this thing is so you realize that we're here and we're viable and it's not just one of us. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly right. Um, You know, it's it's funny, like, the Panthers really do offer up an interesting kind of model in terms of, like, again, if you did have that everywhere, because I think about, like, you know, when they had the young lords, you know, which was out in in New York, York, you know, and also... um, there's an, another expression, I think, of Asian Americans too. They also created created a um, like a sister group that was similar to the Panthers. I think that that level of inspiration of other people of color being inspired by like that that archetype that the, the Panthers laid down. I think it's really important. I feel like we really need to kind of look look back at that, like you're saying, and having those <laughs> in every city because. Again, what they really do function as is like community space where people would go to feel safe. And that's what we still see a lack of right now. Yes. You know? Um, and it's really funny you mentioned the, the Panthers movie because one of the things I was telling my friend I thought was really amazing was some of the footage in the movie, which was showing the armed brothers like in the California like state house. Yeah. And I thought, like, you know, that's really amazing because, man, the only people that would I don't even know the hardest thug that would walk up in the state house with a gun on. Right? So I kept thinking like, wow, this level of power that they visually presented was amazing. And one of the things that I found when I went to the Black Panther show here at the Oakland Museum like last year was amazing to find out how many of them were also art students. The early members were art involved in visual art. Oh, that's interesting. And that they really did a they really focused a lot on how they created their imagery, staging imagery. And that state house imagery of them going up there with their guns and everything, I kept thinking, amazing, amazing visuals because how it compelled. Because even in that movie, they talked to another brother, was like, man, I saw that. And he was like, move. He was like, where do I join? And so that, again, like with that puppy thing, you know, and then also thinking with the carriage, it's more so idea that like you see these moments that one gets inspired to now move and do something else, right? So that's what I'm kind of, again, hoping that that's what will start to happen to give Afrofuturists more of an opening, right? To be really part of like a full part of the conversation. You know, it's interesting, the text I read last night, um, and I'll, I'll pull it up so that way I could actually kind of reference the name more specifically that Lonnie had given me. But one of the things that, he, that came up in the, in the text was cultural movements that pretty radically was talking about nation Islam, I think, and also the, uh, the Dogon in terms of how they have this connection to being related to the dog star. Yeah, serious. You know? yeah. And... Even this one theory that a person had talked about, about Black Atlanteans. And the funny thing I think about that is that, you know, these are interesting, like the Nation of Islam, interesting cultural movements, you know, where, man, like some of the, the underpinning of its mythology is totally science fiction. It's totally 
You know what I mean? Which is a trip. And so if you could get, and the brothers who are part of the nation, Islam, these are God's cats that have done hard time, guys who are trying to reform their lives. They believe in the real concrete every day. They felt it and they, they're in it. So for them to all of a sudden be part and diligently part of a faith that is totally steeped in science fiction, right? In terms of its mythology, that's kind of compelling. Meaning that I think that that creates a window for us. See what I mean? Yes. There is a way that there's these windows that are open for us, you know? Who are you watching, listening to, experiencing right now that is really, you know, turning your head, making your eyebrows raise? Right now, um, hmm, I'm trying to see, you know, that's something that's really kind of tweaking me a little bit right now. Let's see. Uh, you know, I've been trying to listen to a lot of new music, I'm trying to listen to a lot of new, a, a little bit of newer, newer hip hop. And so I was talking to a DJ a little bit about that. Uh, one young artist, Reggie Snow. Interesting, thought kind of interesting. Um, and also to uh, an R&B, listening to a little bit more R&B. And so I was listening to a London-based artist, Liana Havis. Uh, pretty interesting. I really like what she's doing. It sounds like all Afrofuturist songs to me. <laughs> all of her work sounds like Afrofuturist songs. I mean, there's one where she's, you know, crooning for her lover being lost in the coldness of space. You know, there's another song I think she's talking about. Uh, it's almost like a, a hero song. She wants you to join her team. You know, it's like, I was like, wow, these are some really, really kind of interesting music. So that's something I've been really, I like the influence of, of the, that Afrofuturist kind of ponderings in her lyrics. And I ended up talking to my wife yesterday about how I thought it was really funny. I saw the threads of Afrofuturism and um, the Pointer Sisters burning up, doing, uh, doing a Neutron dance. And I was like, whoa, what the hell? And we listened to it yesterday. The lyrics have, I don't think much at all to do with any science fiction, but I was just like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, I'm trying to think of another MC uh, that's trying to think up right now that I like other music. Man, you know, I have to say, man, I've been really locked in on... Gil Scott Heron. Gil Scott Heron. And I think two songs. One is the um, Revolution Will Not Be Televised. I've been playing it almost like every morning. And then the other one is B-Movie by Gil Scott Heron. And it's like a reflection on the Reagan era. And it seems so timely. It seems so very timely. You know? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Well, Naeem, I think we're going to have to do another podcast with you because i mean we have <laughs> i have so many more things to talk to but we are out of time man um, I'm, I'm ready to keep on going for yeah. another another time another no. two hours ready to rock and roll i know right it's been just fantastic to have you I on can you um, so fast yeah i know right it's been it's been uh just a wonderful wonderful conversation can you yeah. tell everybody where we can find you where we can see your work where we can experience the stuff that you're doing Yes, you could totally you could come check me out uh, if you're on social media. Uh, go by the go by, by the handle Afronob One on Instagram. You could check me out there. Also on Facebook, you could also find me at Brown at gmail.com and also to at nyanbrown.com. You will go totally visit my website. So you could check me out there to see a little bit of my work. 
Uh, and also, if you Google my name, there's a couple of different cultural institutions. Uh, the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation down in Omaha, Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts, and then also to the Joan Mitchell Center, Center, uh, Center down in New Orleans. These are all, all different organiza cultural organizations that I've also worked with. You could visit their sites and see some of my work. Well, perfect. Well, thank you, my brother. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And it's like I said, it's been a pleasure, man. It's really super cool, man. This is great. I really hope to get chop it up with you again, man. Yeah, we're definitely gonna have you back on. Appreciate you. All right, man. All right, brother. thank you. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at AhmedBest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at AhmedBest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.